It's been an incredibly difficult week. A week of tears, a week of heartache, a week without sleep. Literally a minute-by-minute struggle not to burst out and crying. Um, I live in Gush Etzion, in Israel, about a minute away from where our three teenage boys were taken hostage this week in the most brutal, savage fashion imaginable. My children attend the school that Naftali and that Gilad, and they should come back to us quickly, attend. My older son is in their class and is very friendly with them. And um, there's nothing to say. It's just been a week of absolute suffering and misery. Being broken on the inside, but having to be strong for others, that others should see faith and commitment and confidence when they so need to feel the confidence that faith can provide and that Avodah Hashem steals us with or, or solidifies our path in life. It's been a week of wildly gyrating emotions, the ups and downs, not really ups, but moments in which you felt part of something larger. Immense awakening of tefillah to stand, as I did with 25,000 people at the Kotel and Davin, all stripes of people, different walks of life, and can't imagine how many people were standing there crying. Literally, you could you could feel the tears coming out of people's eyes, standing right under the Kisiyah Kavod, pleading our case to the Rabboni Shalom, hoping that he would answer us. Really heartwarming scenes of national unity, people from all walks and all ideologies, identifying so deeply, wanting to shower, our children, the children of the school that suffered so terribly, our soldiers who were working so courageously and valiantly to recover, and to shower them with gifts and with love and with support. Incredible inspiration of families and the nobility and dignity by which they're deporting themselves under, there's no way to describe it, hellish, hellish conditions. You feel as if the gates of Gehenna have sprung open. The feelings of helplessness, so little we can do, in pragmatic senses, in actual ways to try to recover them where they may be, imagining all the scenarios these young boys, these, these teenagers are going through alone without their parents to support them, without their parents to assist them. It's just a week of searing, searing pain. And so often when I sat down to record at Vartara, as I try to do on almost a daily basis, I felt... I felt uncomfortable discussing anything else not related to these events that are so overwhelming and consuming, but also uncomfortable, almost callous, talking about the events for two reasons, because the norm is so little to add. And so often uh, when you speak about things without really adding much, especially when they're of such national importance and they're causing such pain to so many people, it comes across as insensitive, as self-serving, just uh, more words, more ideas that everyone knows and, and takes for obvious. And also when you suffer so deeply, sometimes you just suffer in silence. Sometimes the words themselves, even if they have meaning, distract people from the real experience. That's just to commiserate and identify shoulder pain, to try to imagine each in your own little world just a fraction of what the parents of these boys are going through on a minute-by-minute basis, without recess, without break, without diversion. It's very hard for me this week to imagine recording Torah. On the other hand, 
the schus of our learning and whoever is listening to this year should ascend to Shemayim. Perhaps for people that are further from ground zero, so to speak, perhaps the emotions are less raw and the perspectives that this episode um, arouses and the issues of Torah and of Avodah Hashem that this terrible tragedy forces us to consider and, and the values that we're meant to fight for and to defend have to be stated with clarity. And the broader connotations of what we're involved in with globally as the end of history nears, those broader connotations are important to be reinforced. If I'm still uncomfortable sitting here recording Shear about broader issues, about broader connotations, um, when there's such raw pain being felt in the immediate sense by so many people, and such urgent, urgent actions being taken to try to locate to sit back and almost uh, discuss broader perspectives upon this event. Seems callous, seems insensitive. It's Parshas Korach. And in Parshas Korach, the Jewish people approach Moshe Rabbeinu with a complaint. They've witnessed such tragedy, such death, such suffering. A series of plagues and of calamities that have stretched the larger part of three Parshas. In Parshas Bahloscha, there are already the first signs of the fissures that are devastating the Jewish community, the mutinies, the insurrections, the complaints for beef, the complaints for meat, the complaints against Moshe Rabbeinu, the desire to return to Egypt or to die in the desert. And then, of course, the great debacle of the Meragam in Parshas Shlach, followed by this almost unimaginable mutiny of Korach against Moshe, in which Korach and his 250 cohorts are incinerated, and Dasan and Aviram are swallowed up. Korach, I'm sorry, swallowed up. His 250 cohorts are incinerated. And the Jewish people have witnessed unrelenting death. Death, tragedy, suffering, punishment. They approach Moshe Rabbeinu in the middle of Parshas Korach, Vayilonu kaladas b'nei Yisrael mimachras al-Moshe v'yalaron lemor, Atem hamitem esam Hashem. Religion now has been cast in their minds of death. So anytime a person makes a mistake or an error or miscue or misrepresented or misexpressed idea or hope or ambition, it's met with swift repercussions, swift punitive measures, death and destruction. Very bleak and morose outlook of religion. This, of course, is not the way we view religion. The very famous section, the Rambam writes, that when we're forced to violate Shabbos to rescue our life, we shouldn't tarry, we shouldn't delay, we shouldn't try to delegate that intervention to children or to slaves so that we'll maintain our own sanctity of the Shabbos. If push comes to shove, so to speak, and Shabbos has to be violated to save a person's life, that's not a failure of halacha, that's a triumph of halacha. Because religion to us is life embracing. HaKadosh Baruch Hu covets human prosperity, human advance, human welfare. And if halacha is violated, so be it, to save a life, because the purpose of halacha is to enrich and to enhance, to develop and to cultivate human experience, to redeem us in ways that we can't redeem ourselves, 
through submission to a divine code, and save for three Averos, the three cardinal sins which a person must die for, because they're so cardinal, halacha is oriented to preserve life. And if halacha and life clash at a certain particular moment, certain particular context, then life takes priority. And it's a honor to violate Shabbos on behalf of saving a person's life. And as the Rambam editorializes, She'ein mishpite ha-Torah nekama ba'olam Hashem. And his Torah aren't meant to be vengeful and to impose suffering, to impose cruelty. And Hashem isn't full of ire and anger. Ein mishpite ha-Torah nekama ba'olam elarachamim v'chasid v'shalom ba'olam Hashem. is merciful and compassionate. His laws are meant to instill us with mercy and compassion so we can build a better world for ourselves and for those we share the planet with. This is the great legacy of Avraham Avinu. Avraham was the first to discover a moral God. He didn't just see science in a cold, hard, scientific, mathematical sense. He saw a world driven by science, but a world that was oriented toward human welfare. If we were one kilometer closer to the sun, we'd be incinerated with the same science dictating our suffering, or be one kilometer further, we'd freeze with the same science dictating how cold we were. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu positioned our earth just so, positioned our reality just so, that human beings could be enriched and ennobled and create a better world for themselves through His Word and through interaction with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This is Avram's great, great legacy. And our great message to an entire world. And Baruch Hashem, we succeeded in spreading this message across much of our planet. This stage, the Jewish people can't fully see this ideal. This ideal is obscured because they've encountered such suffering, such death, such destruction, such devastation. Consecutive plagues have eviscerated the Jewish population. And they turn to Moshe and they claim, Atem Hamitem Esam Hashem. And what's at stake here is not the particular response of Moshe, but recasting and reframing their view of religion. So Moshe is instructed by a Kodesh Baruch Hu, a few psukim later, to take Aharon's staff, amongst all the other staffs, of all the other um, tribal princes, because the challenge as to who will be the leader of the Jewish people, who was selected for leadership, that challenge is still very raw. Even though Karach has been eliminated, the Jewish people are still smarting from that encounter. So to demonstrate the true selection of Moshe, or in this case Aaron, his staff is placed with all the other staffs of all the other tribes in the Mishkan. And a clear and indisputable selection process will occur. And ultimately Aaron's staff is chosen to silence, to mute, all the vocal challenges which still simmer throughout the Jewish camp. But how is that staff chosen? There's so many different logistics for choosing and selecting that staff. So many different scenarios. A spotlight. A heavenly cloud could have descended over the staff. Fire could have erupted from the staff. The staff could have levitated. The staff could have turned into gold. So many different ways to... to uh, um, to, to visually demonstrate the selection of the staff and therefore the selection of Aharon by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And yet what happens? The staff begins to flower and produce fruit. Very strange, strange metaphor. Strange, strange imagery. 
but in the context of the challenge, not just to Aaron and to his leadership, but to challenge to see religion in the proper way. This flowering and producing fruit makes perfect sense. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to restore the proper view and the proper vantage point or perspective of religion. That religion is meant to support life and growth and food and flowering and development and blossoming, not just the nature, but blossoming of the human condition. And Hashem is not just selecting iron, but restoring the proper perspective, the proper understanding and insight towards religion's true purpose. Countering the claim of Atem Hamitem Esam Hashem, that religion is about death and suffering and human misery, Aaron's staff begins to blossom. And in the blossoming of that staff, the true image, the true image of religion is restored. Blossoming and flowering of the staff is meant to reflect the flowering of the human condition. And the truth is, this message was delivered already when the staff, when the mata was first handed to Moshe Rabbeinu. It's unclear whether the actual stick, the actual rod in Parshas Korach, is the original mata with which Moshe performed the miracles in Egypt. According to some versions it is, according to other versions it isn't. But either way, metaphorically, the staff in Parshas Korach reminds us of Moshe's staff. Whether well, it's the exact same staff, but it's a staff of Moshe and Ahara. In people's minds, it's a staff of Levite leadership, the leadership of the Levim. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu delivers the Mata to Moshe in Parshas Shmos, he tells him, this is the Mata that you should perform Osos. It doesn't say Makos. It's not a staff of Makos. It's a staff of Osos. And the Medrash comments, Hashem was reminding Moshe, even though originally this Mata, initially, will be responsible for punishing, with delivering restitution, will, will produce suffering amongst the Egyptian victims, don't see religion or see God. Remember, the Jewish people are learning about God after 220 years, 210 years of backbreaking labor, which had emptied them of complex visions of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They shouldn't. Their first encounter with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to be through the miracles and the makos of Mitzrayim. They must realize that's not what religion is premised on. Suffering, vengeance, anger, retribution. What it's truly premised upon is life, prosperity, and the same mata Hashem delivers Moshe. Hashem tells him, we'll produce osos, as the Medrash says, not just makos, but osos. Man, kriyas yamsuf, shabbos, shnei luchos habris, Torah, har sinai, water. The very beginning, the very onset of this process of redemption, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu conveys the staff to Moshe Rabbeinu, he reminds him it's a staff not of makos, but of osos. In the initial stages, the staff will render makos, but overall it shouldn't be referred to as a staff of makos, and religion shouldn't be described as religion of makos, but religion of life and welfare and human experience. That same message is resurfacing in Parshas Karach, where in the context of such death, necessary response to challenges of divine authority, challenges of Moshe's authority, heresy, in response to that people are punished, but religion is not about death. Religion is about life and the flowering of the staff. There's a broader battle being waged. We're engaged in so many challenges. Challenges that are almost 
inconceivable. So difficult to handle, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu expects of the Jewish people as we near the end of history to be stout enough and courageous enough to handle these challenges. We face challenges to our rights in this land as we try to regain our sovereignty. We face challenges in the wake of the Holocaust to rebuild our national character and religious backbone. But we're also facing a challenge about the image of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in our world. Radical Islam, religious terror, speaks in the name of God. And it distorts the true image of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And in this respect, it's heretical. Though Islam on its own is the purest non-Jewish blend of monotheism, far more pure monotheistically than Christianity in all of its forms, in all of its uh, varieties, it does not attribute any physical elements to God. It is adulterated by its militantism in the militant forms, and not just in the practical sense, the moral corruption of aggressive militantism, but the suggestion that there's happiness in heaven when human beings suffer, that there's delight in God's mind or God's heart, Human beings are exposed to cruel, savage acts of barbarism. God's image is being hijacked by Islam and is being vandalized and tarnished. If you ask ten moderns to describe God and religion, most of them would say warfare, suffering, extremism, fundamentalism, death, destruction, misery... And that challenge is not just playing itself out in the Holy Land of Eretz Yisrael, but across the entire Middle Eastern Basin, as one Arab country after another faces extreme fundamentalist Islam, caving in under the weight of savage butchery, terrorism, attacking innocent people. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, it's inconceivable to speak of the larger issues before just understanding and sympathizing with basic human suffering. It's so offensive when people immediately escape. It's almost escapism. Rather than focusing on the human element of how much human beings are suffering, just to broaden the conversation into important, but maybe um, issues that should be spoken about after the pain has subsided in a different context. People are suffering obviously in Eretz Yisrael, but in a larger sense. But also, equally as important, this is a challenge to the true face of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in our world. And by facing this challenge, we don't just face it as individuals, as a people, as one family suffering, but we face it because we care about Hashem's image in our world, because we're yearning for that day the Sakin Olam Mimalcho Shakai, a world that's suffused with the understanding of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Chobanei Vasar Vishmacha. People understand not just God, but understand the true image of God, the true essence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's why, even though it's a strange sentence, that's why Islam, in its current expression, in the militant form that is being expressed so, so prominently, is heresy. Even though... From a pure theological standpoint, they're not attaching anything physical to God. 
It's heretical because denying the ways of God, they're presenting a God that doesn't exist. In that respect, it's heretical. Not because they've changed God from transcendent to physical, because they've altered the face of God from peace-loving and compassionate to militant and angry, vengeful, full of ire. That's not the God we know. Even though Judaism has moments in which we're expected to act based on divine command, even against norms of human intuition and human morality, the destruction of Amalek being the obvious, the Akedah being historical equivalent, those aren't the foundations or cornerstones of what Judaism is premised on. That's not the way we behave on a day-to-day basis. These are limited, isolated episodes in history on the margins of Jewish experience that are meant to create certain paradigms to offset a purely human or human instinct-based form of religion. But day-to-day, thread-by-thread, minute-by-minute, we affirm the fact that the laws of Torah, as the Rambam wrote, are not nekama, but a rachamim v'chesed v'shalom. That's part of the battle we're facing. Obviously not to be taken in place of the more immediate challenge, but to remind ourselves that this is a larger drama being played out as the end of days near and as we're inching excruciatingly slowly but still inching closer to that day where the world will be filled with the true knowledge of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. As Yeshaya says, like the waters cover the earth, cover the basins. People will pilgrimage to Yushalayim and recognize the Yomer Kol Asher Neshama Biapo. Any breathing organism will say, Hashem Elokei Yisrael Melech, the God of the Jews. Even though the God of the Muslims is not that theologically different from the God of the Jews, in terms of pure theology, in terms of whether he's physical or not. But we have defiantly reminded an entire world, not just that he isn't physical, but that he's full of rachamim, v'chesed, v'shalom. Shabbat shalom, and hopefully, hopefully, in the schus of whatever Torah we learn, including, of course, the tfilos that we so fervently, fervently plead with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and hopefully the acts of kindness and the acts of chesed that we increase. And most importantly, our ability to feel at one with our people in times of such suffering. To reach out across whatever oceans divide us, whatever time zones contain us. To feel even a fraction of the, of the misery, the pain that we're feeling here in Eretz Yisrael, all of us at different levels. The pain we're feeling on behalf of all of our people, because we're here in Israel serving our entire nation, building our future. Hopefully the schus of all of that will ascend to Shemayim and convince HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The time has come, if not for our final redemption, if not for our final return, rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash, at least for a partial redemption, at least to relieve and alleviate the nightmare that we're living through. Shabbat Shalom.